we started with a vision of the counterculture as um, a kind of colossal technicolor rebellion against the industrial world emerging in the 1940s and 50s during and after World War II. And I argued then that there was far more continuity than change, and I would argue that even more so now. I think that the 60s brought us a kind of deeply personalist, flexible, um, playful, expressive new society. And it's been enormously powerful in the generation of new identities that can be expressed politically. Women's rights, queer rights, racial civil rights, really more of a 50s thing. But it's also brought us some real problems. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. So uh, without any further ado, uh, we'll bring Fred to the stage. Uh, Fred is currently the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor and chair of the Department of Communication at Stanford. Uh, his books, uh, two of which are, are here for sale tonight and uh, in the back, and of course he'll be signing them afterwards uh, and, and hawking, hawking them with, uh, with, without, with no shame, yes, as, as he well should. Um, and uh, so I, I don't think I need to, to, to say much more other than to say uh, he is uh, he, he is someone who's looking at a near history for us, which is a great service that we don't always get a, a, the perspective of a talent and a, a perceptive mind uh, like Fred. So uh, thanks for that. Let's give him a round of applause and hear what he has to say. Great. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. And thank you, Xander, for having me. Um, thank you, Long Now. Thank you, Interval. Um, and thank you all for being here. Uh, if some of you are scholars and book writers, you'll know that you spend a lot of time alone in your room, um, and that every so often it's absolutely thrilling to get out and actually talk with folks, and, and so it's, it's a thrill for me to be here tonight. I'm going to walk us through um, kind of a complicated and long history. Uh, I'm going to walk us through starting ultimately in the early 40s, and the question that animates a lot of my work is, what was the counterculture, and what has it changed since it arrived? Um, I've been involved for a long time, about 10 years, in kind of tracking both the roots of the counterculture and its impact on the tech world, especially today. Um, and ironically, I'm, it's, it's a little bit odd to be here. Um, my PhD dissertation um, was actually about Stuart Brand. Um, <laughs> so it's a little odd to be here um, in, in, in this room, but also, also really exciting. So let's go back um, to the counterculture. Oh, we just lost a slide. There we go. Great. Okay. So, this is 1967, this is the March on the Pentagon. I've been a journalist for about 10 years. Um, I was born in 61, and I returned to graduate school in the mid-1990s. And when I got there, I discovered that there was a kind of consistent story about how the 1960s worked. In that story, told mostly by historians who were themselves children of the 1960s, or at least young adults in the 1960s, the, the counterculture was a single movement that kind of rose up in technicolor glory against a closed-down, hierarchical, um, emotionally constrained, heteronormative, mostly white Cold War America. 
Um, it's a very powerful idea, um, and it's, it's one that I used to think was true. Um, I don't think that's what happened anymore. And my mission today is to walk you through what I think actually happened. I'm going to make three cases. I'm going to make first the case that the idea that we associate most quintessentially with the 1960s, the idea that the personal is political, did not in fact emerge there, but rather emerged, I mean you could say it emerged in lots of places, 19th century romanticism or others, but one of the places that emerged most centrally was the 1940s. A, we can draw kind of a direct line, and I'm going to try to draw it tonight, between personality theory in the 1940s, the hippies of the 1960s, and in many ways what we imagine the hackers of our own time to be. The second thing that I had been told about the counterculture was that it had stood against mainstream military industrial culture. That turns out not to be true either. It is true that there was a tremendous amount of tumult and rebellion against particular militarized military culture, against the army in particular, but there was also a very deep embrace of the guiding ideals of military industrial culture, its collaborative research culture, its emphasis on small-scale technologies for transformative purposes, and above all, its guiding intellectual dogma, cybernetics. We're actually sitting in a room that owes some of its design to that allegiance. Finally, I'm going to make a third case. Having walked from the 40s to the 60s to the present, I'm going to argue that the bohemian modes of organizing, gathering, collaborating that emerged most visibly in the 1960s are guiding the rise of a new mode of manufacturing today. Um, and so that's the case. I'm going to try to walk us from the 1940s um, to the present and try to do it in a you know, reasonably quick way. I'll probably talk for about 45 minutes. If you have questions of fact as I move through, please jump right in. If you have conceptual questions, please hold those um, because I, I think we'll have some time to, to get right into that after the talk. Good to go? Yeah. All right, great. Onward. All right, so this is what I've been up to. Um, for the last 10, almost 15 years now, I've been involved in a kind of long, um, long history. And it's a history that began with a PhD dissertation on the counterculture and on Stuart Brand. And I wrote that book, it became a book, started as a dissertation, became a book. It's available in the back. Uh, there'll be two advertisements, that was the first one. The, sec <laughs> the second one will come a little bit later, okay? Um, that book tried to show how countercultural folks associated with Stuart and with the Whole Earth Network had a real impact on how we imagined the internet as it emerged into the world. The argument of that book was that the commune world of the 1960s set the conceptual terms by which we came to understand the internet and the world wide web as an electronic frontier. And it, it, it's a, I'm very proud of it as an argument. Um, one of the things that I found most strange when I was writing that book was flipping open the first pages of the Whole Earth Catalog and seeing people like Norbert Wiener in the mix. Now, Stuart and his then-wife Lois had created the Whole Earth Catalog to provide tools for people headed back to the land. Now, you know, you might think that what you would want most of all when you headed back to the land was a tractor or a hoe, but in fact, the Whole Earth Catalog was about 80% books. And those books often dealt with systems theory, with cybernetics. They were written by Norbert Wiener, by Buckminster Fuller. I was surprised because I had been told that the counterculture had nothing to do with the 40s. And yet, the deeper I got into Stuart Brand's life and the life of folks around him, the more I saw that he and his friends were reading people from the 40s. They were reading Eric Fromm, they were reading Margaret Mead, Gregory Bateson. These folks are all intellectual leaders from the World War II era. 
And so as I began to think about what I wanted to do for a new book, I just kept on working backwards. And I ended up doing, and this is the second advertisement, heads up, uh, I ended up doing another book, which I'll talk a lot about tonight, The Democratic Surround. And in that book, I returned to a 1940s that I never knew. It's a 1940s in which intellectuals, sociologists, social scientists, government officials are, are pursuing a radically anti-racist agenda, a radically pro-sexual preference diversity agenda, and the development of multimedia forms that are explicitly designed to resist the psychology of fascism. Those efforts in the 1940s, I argue, set the stage for the psychedelic revolution of the 1960s, and that's the theme of, of this book. Um, tonight, I'm going to talk, take, try to take the toll trajectory and take us up a little bit into the present. But let's go back to the past first. So this is the late 1930s. In the late 1930s, and you know, arguably foreshadows some of the issues that we're facing now, the American government had a problem. The problem was this. Germany, Italy, Japan had become fascist states. In the late 1930s, America was still kind of a pokey, third-worldish sort of country, and it thought of, Japan, it thought of Germany and of France particularly as um, the homes of the highest culture in the world. And so American intellectuals particularly, but also political leaders, um, journalists, were shocked to think that Germany had fallen for this crazy, short, mustachioed former clerk, Adolf Hitler. How was it that the most cultured nation in the land had gone fascist? And there were a lot of answers in play. Um, some of the answers had to do with Weimar and economic chaos, but they were actually in the minority. The bigger set of answers, the more common set of answers, had to do with mass media. There was a terrible fear that mass media had literally turned the Germans into fascists. And it had happened in one of two ways. Either Hitler and his cohort were in fact insane and had managed to broadcast their insanity through the wires, through the radio, through the cinema, into the mass of Germans who were hearing them. Or there was something about one-to-many broadcast structure that literally forced you to somehow turn off your reason, open up your unconscious, and render yourself vulnerable to a single leader. And, you know, today these sound maybe a little bit wacky, but they didn't sound as wacky in, in that time. And that's partly because the media themselves were newer, but it's also because fascism was a very real and living possibility in America at this time. Um, I didn't know before I did this book, and you may not know as well, that um, in 1939, 22,000 Americans met in Madison Square Garden under an American banner and a Nazi flag, and under a banner hanging from the ceiling that said, Stop Jewish Domination of Christian America. They celebrated fascism. In 1939, after Hitler went into Germany, after Hitler went into Poland, after he went into Poland, a thousand Americans marched down East 86th Street in New York carrying swastikas and American flags, wearing their own brown shirt uniforms, and they were not booed. There are pictures of both these events in my book. It's simply astonishing. Um, Father Coughlin, some of you may have heard of him, a demagogue from the late 1930s, had three and a half million listeners every week. He uh, celebrated things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a Nazi tract, a uh, proto-Nazi tract. He had, um, according to Gallup polls, 70% of his listeners agreeing with his views every week. That's three million people every week um, in support of fascism. Um, my guess is you probably remember Humphrey Bogart, the actor, yeah? Oh, yeah. 
Okay, just let's just shout out some movies, some Humphrey Bogart movies. Just give me any old title. Casablanca, good, all right. This is like the Casa... What? African Queen, good, keep going. Maltese Falcon. Maltese Falcon, excellent. Others? Have and have not. Okay, great. Nobody has mentioned the Black Legion. 1937, very popular movie. Um, Humphrey Bogart starred as a black-shirted American fascist who kills his Polish neighbor and regrets it. Um, in the immortal words of the novelist Sinclair Lewis, there was an understanding in the late 30s, as again there probably is today, that it can happen here. And so the challenge facing American government officials and American intellectuals as World War II got underway was, how do we do propaganda on our own people to encourage them to resist fascism without turning them into fascists? Now, <laughs> there's actually a faction in Roosevelt's circle um, who I discovered archivally um, really thought Joseph Goebbels was the bomb. Um, they wanted to imitate Joseph Goebbels' propaganda techniques, and they told Roosevelt, look, don't worry about it. They may turn authoritarian for a bit, but we can bring them back later. Dead serious. Okay. There was another group, though, and, and, and led in part by Margaret Mead, who you see here, the anthropologist, who had a very different vision. And I'm, I'm, I'm enormously, I was enormously excited to get to know her and the community around her. Um, in 1940, 41, Mead and 59 other leading intellectuals formed something called the Committee for National Morale. And these folks, the folks who did this were Arthur Upham Pope, an art historian, uh, let's see, Gordon Allport, a psychologist, Mead, her then husband, Gregory Bateson. And these folks were social scientists who were very committed to, to, to sort of two ideas, one about media, one about the way the world worked. Let's start with the way the world worked. They were, some of them, students of Franz Boas, the anthropologist, and they believed that every culture on the planet had a modal personality. And the, the job of media and the job of the family was to train citizens to reach that modal personality, to be that kind of person. They explained the rise of fascism in Germany in part as a function of an authoritarian personality type that lived in Germany and that had been invoked by Hitler. And they said that what we needed to do was develop and cultivate a democratic personality and we needed to develop media that would do that. Now, a democratic personality, in their view, was warm, open, collaborative. It was explicitly anti-racist. It was not only tolerant of um, sexual difference, sexual preference difference, but embraced all different kinds of people. Mead herself was bisexual, as were many in her circle. Um, homosexuality, bisexuality were um, far more than tolerated. They were sort of a normal part of life in, in her world. And, and that's important to know. So they hoped to develop a new kind of morale. They wanted to develop a morale centered on personality, and they were going to develop a new mode of media to do it. Um, let's start with the personality part. This is Gordon Allport. Um, oh, here he is, Gordon Allport. Um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes when you look back at the past and you see people in very conservative suits with no hair, you think, wow, must have been a conservative. Far from it. This is a man who got on horseback and met with the Boston City Police and tried to, tried to train them in resisting racism. He's, a, he's, a, he's actually kind of a radical guy. Two words here that we need to pay special attention to, 1942. In a democracy, every personality can be a citadel of resistance to tyranny. For the folks in Committee for National Morale, it was the personality 
the center of the, of the person, the democratic personality that was the source of political resistance. This is an idea, I just want to flag this right now, it's going to come back to haunt us. Personality is going to become the basis of an expressive politics in the 60s. It's also going to become the basis of Donald Trump's power. Coming back to that. The second piece that's really important is that they distrusted hierarchy. They did not want to see top-down hierarchy. They did not want to see one-to-many structures because those were characteristic of fascism. They wanted to organize Americans by coordinating them, by gathering them together. Think Facebook. <laughs> Facebook. Okay? Here, too, is one of the origin points of the logic that governs the world of search and social media. The thing about the Committee for National Morale is they were, you know, they were great social scientists, but they were lousy media builders. Um, they actually sent a proposal. I found this in the archives. It cracked me up. They sent a proposal um, to uh, Mrs. Rockefeller, who funded the, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, for an extra building. They wanted to build a building with um, pictures everywhere, sounds from all sides, smoke blowing in, and statues that talked about America. Um, it was kind of a goofy idea. But the essential thing that they were getting at was that they believed that if you could surround individuals with media, with images, with sounds, you could free them to practice choosing, using their perceptions to choose in such a way that they would become more democratic. Their psyches would literally become more democratic because they had to practice choosing things together. Now, Committee for National Morale couldn't make media. Um, fortunately for them, in 1937, a group of Bauhaus refugees came to New York, and among them was Herbert Beyer, who you, whose work you see here on the screen. Herbert Beyer was the Bauhaus typographer in the early part of the 20th century. Um, he went on to help found the Aspen Institute um, and all of the Aspen culture that we know today. But in 1937, he was a guy who needed a job. He came here with a highly developed understanding of multi-image display. He had been designing museum exhibitions in Germany and in France and other countries, surrounding viewers with images and furniture and three-dimensional objects, because he and his Bauhaus colleagues believed that that would make viewers more able to resist industrial society. When he got to the States, it was very easy for him to repurpose that technique and argue for American audiences that the same technique could now produce democratic citizens, citizens able to, reduce, re, uh, able to fight back against fascism. His designs became the basis of a new mode that I've called the democratic surround. It's a new genre, it's an aesthetic that emerges in 1942 and travels all the way down to our own time. This is the first time it ever appeared in public, as far as I can tell. This is a 1942 propaganda exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, and it's designed by Herbert Beyer and Edward Steichen, the famous photographer who would go on to design Family of Man on the same principles. Now, if you look at the slides, right, you can see that there are images of lots of different sizes, um, you know, and it looks very propagandistic. You, you can see here, um, there's uh, a man who says, ah, war, by God, they asked for it, by God, they'll get it. Down here, you see Tojo giggling while Pearl Harbor burns. Um, this is very much a kind of propaganda exhibition, but that's not what stirred viewers. It's really interesting. I've looked at all the reviews of this show that I can find. Um, there were about 80,000 people who saw the show uh, in, its first, in, in the eight weeks of its run, and what struck them was the way in which the multimedia experience called forth a new way of seeing the show. One, one reviewer said, 
This show does not mold viewers' opinions, for that word smacks of fascism. It was the display mode itself that most excited audiences. They imagined that they were finally free to move among these images, to walk down the road to victory with whomever they liked, seeing images on the wall, identifying with the images that had animated them the most, ignoring others. They felt in control of their own experience and yet unified in their love of America. And it was a feeling that ended up defining a genre. Uh, I go into the history of the genre at great length and with great pictures, third advertisement, sorry, um, in, in the book, The Democratic Surround. But for our purposes tonight, what I want to point out is simply that the surround traveled from that World War II moment all the way into the 1960s, particularly the psychedelic environments of the 1960s, down two roads. One road, and I'll show you an example of this in a moment, was propaganda expositions. Starting in the mid-1950s, America worked hard to compete overseas with uh, foreign powers, notably uh, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, and China. And they began building multi-image environments that they hoped would democratize foreign peoples. I'm going to show you one in a moment. The other way this form travels is it travels through art worlds, particularly through the new Bauhaus in Chicago, and through the new Bauhaus to the work of John Cage, and through John Cage, into the first happenings of the 1960s. Those happenings, in turn, set the stage for Stuart Brand's work with the US Company um, and some of the world that we're sitting in here tonight. All right, propaganda first. This is Moscow, 1959. That's a gigantic geodesic dome. Um, anybody remember what happened here, American National Exhibition? Kitchen. There it is, kitchen debate. You got it, kitchen debate. So Khrushchev and Nixon are actually fighting down here. Um, what happened was this. In 19, I think it was 57, might have been 58, Khrushchev was on American television being interviewed, and he lost his temper. He said, all right, fine, I've had enough. You give me an exhibition in Manhattan, I'll give you an exhibition in Moscow. And the American propaganda enterprise and American corporations went wild. They were psyched. So we had, and many of you may not know, that we had um, large pictures, uh, large statues of Marx and Lenin um, in Manhattan. Um, in a show that was actually reasonably widely attended. But we had everything that we could possibly get done in Sokolniki Park in Moscow in 1959. This is what it looked like. This is just one building. It's a geodesic dome about 200 meters across. It's huge. It's golden. It's designed by Buckminster Fuller. And you can see here seven screens. These are each about 35 feet across, and they're designed by the Eames, Ray and Charles Eames. Uh, <laughs> The Eames were very involved in this whole, whole scene. It's called Glimpses of the USA, and each screen shows a different but related single slide connected to the other slides. So I have to confess a, a, a moment of archival pain. Um, I was at the United States Information Agency archives in Maryland, and I found a, a recently declassified document that explained what was going on here. It said this. It said, we need to approach foreign peoples like a psychotherapist. We need to begin by assessing their psychological condition. How democratic are they? How free are they? Second, we need to stage a communicative intervention in order to make them more democratic. Third, we need to assess whether that intervention has worked. That process starts in 1956. It reaches its peak here. The 1959 Moscow exhibition 
was designed to give Soviet citizens the experience of visual choice, and then also through the offerings of commercial products, the experience of consumer choice. By 1959, the kind of early radical politics of the surround had faded away, and what had taken its place was a kind of consumerist democracy that we were trying to export to the Soviet Union. Found three other documents in the Museum of Modern Art. They were fascinating. They were actually the same document with one line changed in each version. Um, one was marked um, secret, and it said, um, we want to build this kind of environment. The second was, uh, sorry, that was confidential. The second one was marked secret, and it said, we want to build this kind of environment in order to democratize the Soviet citizen citizenry. The third document said, we want to democratize the Soviet citizenry so that they will overthrow their government. My point here is that this is a time when multimedia seemed to Americans, multi-screen media, multi-sound media, seemed to Americans to be tools for the overthrow of whole totalitarian societies through the overthrow of totalitarian mindsets. Personality is the citadel of resistance, and if it is, then what we need to do is build systems for the transformation of personality. I'm not going to talk about the art world tonight. There's a lot about that in the book, and it's a great story, so I, I urge you to, to, to read it. But I am going to say this. This, too, is a system for the transformation of personality. These are geodesic domes, the same technology that Buckminster Fuller used in 1959, this time deployed in Trinidad, Colorado, at Drop City, one of the first and, and most important of the communes to come. You know, when I first started working on communes, I, I thought geodesic domes were something that hippies had invented. Um, imagine my surprise when I learned that they were, in fact, something that Buckminster Fuller had patented um, so that he could provide coverings for um, radars on the defense early warning line. I'll show you some photos of that in a moment. What's intriguing to me here, though, is that the counterculturalists of Drop City took with them an idea from the 40s. And the idea was this. If we reshape our... Physical and, uh, our physical and media environment, we can become a new kind of people. And if we become a new kind of people, we can give rise to a new kind of society. All right. I have to walk you back a little bit. When I st first started working on the Whole Earth Catalog, I believed, as many do today, or many did at the time anyways, that the counterculture was a single movement. Todd Gitlin, uh, leader of the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, put it this way, way back um, in about 1985. He said, the movement wanted to be both strategic and expressive, political and cultural, to change the world, end the war, win civil rights, while freeing life in the here and now. Sometimes these poles were compatible, sometimes not. Um, according to sort of you know, traditional historiography, at least by the mid-'80s, the counterculture rejected mainstream society as a whole, rejected mil the military-industrial complex, and rejected technology and technologists. This is manifestly untrue. Um, I had a very strange experience, which I guess I'll recount here. Um, I, talked, I was interviewing Todd Gitlin for this book, and I, I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm working on this book about Stuart Brand. He said, oh, Stuart Brand, I hate Stuart Brand. I interviewed Stuart Brand, and I said, oh, I talked to Todd Gitlin. He says, oh, I don't know about Todd Gitlin. What became apparent to me, just in that little interaction, but that became even more apparent to me as I did my homework, was that there were, in fact, at least two countercultures. One, the new left, did politics to change politics. It was focused on struggle, focused on leaders and parties, on marching against the war, um, and its signal organization was Students for a Democratic Society. 
On the other hand, I would argue, centered here in San Francisco, was a, a wing of the counterculture that I've ended up having to give a name to, and I call them the New Communalists. <coughs> and I call them that because, because between 1966 and 1973 was the largest wave of commune building in all of American history. Depending on your sources, somewhere between several hundred thousand and a million Americans began living together communally, many in rural areas, as they headed back to the land. This is an extraordinary time. Now, the communes didn't last very long, but they were enormously uh, influential, I think. The new communalists did not believe in struggle, per se. Rather, they believed in consciousness. We need to transform consciousness, transform mindset, in order to make a new kind of society. In order to do that, they wanted to adopt key technologies produced by mainstream society. Um, some of those you can see in the geodesic dome, but, but more you can think of LSD, you can think of stereo music. Um, they trusted not in politics, but in design. Design was the technique by which we might build a better and different world. And I, I love saying that here. You know, design is a, is a way to model and control a new kind of world. And in contrast to SDS, its signal organizational form was the commune. Now, if you're going to tackle an orthodoxy in history, you have to figure out an alternative explanation. And the orthodoxy that I inherited was that, you know, the counterculture was against technologies of the Cold War. And it's just, not, it's just not so, because the children of the 1950s found themselves caught between two, two sort of technological poles. On the one hand, mass technology, military technology, the atom bomb, threatened to destroy the world. And no one who was a child in the 50s and a young adult in the 60s wanted to grow up to be like the men who would destroy the world. Who wanted to be Dr. Strangelove? No, nobody. But the other thing that happened in the 1950s was that we saw a flowering of consumer technologies. The 1950s was the time when the highway system was first completed. And when the highway system was completed, it became possible to do things like take an acid-fueled road trip. <laughs> you know, we could travel before, but Keezy becomes Keezy in part because there's a highway system. Automobiles are cheap. Automobiles are cheap. LSD. LSD comes to the West Coast through the Veterans Administration Hospital in Menlo Park. That's where Kesey tries it. That's where Stuart Brand tries it. Suddenly it becomes available up here in the city by the early 60s. These are technologies being produced by, by mainstream America for consumption. One other technology that's really important is simply stereo music. Um, you know, in my own life, right, I grew up in a small suburban town, um, as everyone seems to have in this period, and we had a big family stereo. The big family stereo sat in the living room and it played Montavani, right? You could always tell when the parents were in a romantic mood because the strings would come out. You know, it's horrifying, right? <laughs> Especially to a young teenager, really, no bad. Um, well, um, one time for Christmas, I think I was about 14, my mother gave me my very own close and play 45, 45 RPM record player, okay? And I took that baby into my room and I closed the door and I put on, I think it was Jerry Lee Lewis. And it was just like, yes! I was free in that space. If you had grown up with those kinds of technologies as the children of the 50s did, you wouldn't want to abandon them, and they didn't. So the children of the 1950s wanted to start, stay away from mass technology, military technology, large weapon systems, large-scale technology, but they treasured small-scale technology. And they treasured it in terms that were set by Buckminster Fuller. Buckminster Fuller was an architect, a peripatetic journalist, and in 1949, 
um, I believe it was actually for Forbes magazine, he wrote an essay about something that he called comprehensive design and about a new kind of person whom he called the comprehensive designer. During World War I, Fuller had a daughter. And he and his wife were, were fairly poor. They lived next to a large uh, naval base. And their daughter died. She died of paralysis. And he believed that she had died because all of the resources needed to save her had been directed to this naval base. They had gotten rich while he and his family had suffered. And he resolved that his mission would be to redistribute the goods of the industrial world more equitably. And he, one of the ways that he argued we should do this was through comprehensive design. What the individual comprehensive designer should do, in Fuller's view, was identify resources from the industrial world and then valve them down into everyday life. Turn them into tools for transforming your own local reality. This is how he expressed it. Um, <laughs> It's just a wall of text, um, and it's so fuller, right? If man is to continue as a successful pattern, complex function, and universal evolution, you know, this is the kind of stuff that made sense in the 50s, early 60s, right? Everybody was so soaked in the Cold War and the power of science that you could say things like this, and people would go, yeah. Okay. Two key words here. First, artist-scientist. The comprehensive designer was meant to be simultaneously a creative individual and a scientific analyst. Um, this room, I, I love talking about this here, because this room is devoted precisely to artists, art, just like, what, art, artistic scientism, scientific artistry. I don't even know what to call it, but the fusion is right here. The second piece was design. In Fuller's view, the comprehensive designer was to leave politics out of it turn away from politics, turn away from mainstream society, let the industrialists do what they were going to do. Your job was to take industrial products and put them to work in your own life through a process of design. You were to design your own life. One of the signal technologies in Fuller's view for this purpose was ultimately going to be the geodesic dome. The geodesic dome first flourishes as a military technology. Fuller patented it in the early 50s. Um, here it is with the Marines um, practicing bringing it to the defense early warning line, um, which was the, the line of radar installations that stretched across, the, across Canada toward Greenland um, and was to warn us about incoming Russian bombers. My point here is that, that was, the geodesic dome was a quintessential military industrial technology but it was also the kind of technology that counterculturalists could valve into their lives along the principles of, of comprehensive design. Remember those geodesic domes I showed you earlier, the colorful ones, um, which are actually kind of drawn up here in, in, in um, silhouette? Each of those colored panels was something that a hippie hacked out of the roof of an automobile. It was wild. Um, when they went to Drop City, they went over to junkyards and they chopped roofs off cars, $5 a piece, and then they cut them to fit Buckminster Fuller's designs and tacked them together to make geodesic domes. It was that important to take automobiles, the industrial products of the industrial age, and redefine them as tools for the transformation of consciousness. You can see that all through the commune movement of the 1960s. Uh, this is one of my favorites. This is um, a commune... Oh, gosh, I have to, I, I don't want to get it wrong. Let me just quick check. Um, 
Yeah, it's the Llama Foundation. This is the Llama Foundation um, with Steve Baer in the center there. Um, these are actually some of Stuart Brand's early friends from the art world of the 1960s, um, who by this time, this is about 1968, have gone back to the land and founded a commune. And they're dancing here under a geodesic dome that they're building for world peace. They believed that the transformation of consciousness and the use of formerly industrial technological forms for that purpose could remake the world. Hints of Facebook. Hints of Facebook. <laughs> We're moving now toward the present. This is Mark Zuckerberg's camp at, at, at uh, Burning Man a couple years back. Um, was anyone at Burning Man 13? Anybody here go with the, the shady waffle crowd? Okay. Pardon? Yeah, good. All right, great. Good. I'll, I'll watch my tongue then. Thank you. Oh, that's good. Okay, great. But you know, yeah, but you know who that, yeah, we know, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh, we can talk about that. Yeah. So what's intriguing to me is here's, here's this geodesic dome at, at Burning Man, right? In a kind of weird co party-colored echo of Drop City. You know, and I've spent some time at Facebook recently, and I've, I've discovered that they even issue to employees a copy of the button that made Stuart Brand famous. Stuart Brand used to walk around with a button that said, um, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole Earth yet? At Facebook, you can get a button that says, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole Earth connected yet? They clearly, you know, Zuckerberg in particular, but others, others in the tech world clearly see themselves as descendants of the countercultural world that I've just described. And I want to specify what that looks like. I'll talk a little bit about Burning Man. So about the time that I finished um, the counterculture book, uh, I went over to Google um, to do some work in Google News. And I walked into the main atrium of the first building, Building 43. And at that time, the lobby that welcomed you to the firm was decorated with pictures of topless fire spinners um, from Burning Man. People doing Burning Man things, Burning Man artworks, and I, I, I couldn't figure this out, right? I had been writing about computers in the IBM era when if you went to the lobby, you were probably going to see a female secretary in wool with a think thing on her desk, right? With a think sign on her desk and sort of like blonde wood in the, in the halls. I was trying to figure out how it was that what was clearly about to become the preeminent information firm of our era should be decorating its welcome lobby with pictures of this weird countercultural festival in the desert. Um, so like any good sociologist, I went. Um, I went out to Burning Man a couple of times. Let me just tell you, for the sociologists in the room, you haven't lived until your university sends you to Burning Man <laughs> with a form um, that your interviewees must sign. Um, <laughs> and, and furthermore, when your university demands um, that, they not, that they be sober when they sign it, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just things we do for science, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of rough. Um, what I want to argue, and what I ended up arguing in, in, in some work I've done on Burning Man and Google, is that the mode of gathering that we see in the desert here is um, a kind of emblem of new modes of manufacturing that are emerging across the tech industry and migrating from the tech industry into other spaces. Let me take it a little bit slowly. In the 19th century, Max Weber talked about the Protestant ethic and how it shaped industrial production. 
I want to argue that Burning Man is to contemporary new media production what the Protestant church was to industrial production in the 19th century. If you lived in Pittsburgh in the 19th century, you would go to church with your other factory mates, your steel mill mates, the executives would sit up front, middle management would be right behind them, and you, the workers, would be in the way back. Here at Burning Man, if you've, if you've been, wait, a quick check, how many have actually been to the playa? <laughs> I love this room, thank you, that's great. Okay, so if you've been to the playa, you know that um, this is a space of kind of radical individuality and radical collaboration. People go to the playa, um, they buy a ticket, they leave their money ostensibly mostly behind, um, they drive out and they work on art projects together, they work collaboratively. And when they get out there, they're extraordinarily visible to one another. They can see one another, they can make art. It's a weirdly individuated and collective place. It's a place where you can build new social networks and new technological goods at the same time. It is in many ways, I would argue, a model of a project-based technology-centered economy. But it's done in a spiritual idiom. It's a place to practice the deepest values on which the engineering culture of Google depends. And it's partly for that reason that things like whole earth emblems and whole earth ideology recur in a place like Facebook, which is otherwise a company devoted to profiting from mass surveillance. Surveillance is a kind of a funny thing, right? So surveillance applies at Burning Man too, and this is one of the things that intrigues me the most about Burning Man. Burning Man, is a, Burning Man has generated more pictures than any countercultural festival I've ever been in. I just Google up Burning Man photo sometime, and you know, masses, just, it's like your computer will just not stop downloading. Um, it's a space where people watch one another to see what one another are doing. It's a place where your individual expressiveness is the engine of your camp's productivity, and it's also the sign of your sort of membership and success in the system. Burning Man is a site for what I call, in, my, in a more sociological idiom, expressive labor. It's a place where you gather to do two things that we often think of as opposites. You gather to work and to make physical objects, like art cars that you see here, and you gather to make community, collaboration, intimacy. And in that joint process, you express something that is meant to be internal and authentic to yourself. Burning Man is a place to express one's internal self in terms that are entirely consonant with the new economy, in technology-driven projects and colorful, playful, high-tech-ish, interaction. Um, it's a very, very odd thing. I want to take the analysis just a bit farther, and I want to argue that a lot of new firms, we, we give them different names, we talk about them as commons-based firms or platform-based firms, have a couple of features. One feature is they have an open platform of some kind, they have an open commons. At Google, that open commons is, is complex, it consists of the physical space of manufacturing, it also consists of different online systems. At Burning Man, the playa, the dust, the ground is literally the open commons on which collaboration takes place. At Google, you're for, if you're an engineer, you're pushed into an office with two or three or four people, usually it's kind of cramped. That's so that you meet other people and get to know them and show them your personality so that you can do projects together. At Burning Man, you join a camp, you meet other camps, you mush up together doing projects together. Um, I won't, I won't go too far on this, but I want to note that 
Burning Man and certain tech firms. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so at this moment, though, is Burning Man becoming just corporate team building? So, yes. Yes. Creating a corporate citizen. Right. So, so I love it. You're, 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 you're speaking for me. Um, I'm, I'm, no, no, no. It's, no, it's, totally, no it's, it's really good. It's exactly right. It means we're, 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 we're communicating. It's excellent. Yes, this is about team building. But I would argue that it's always been about team building. And that team building itself is actually a really... Um, it, it's, a, it, it, it's a simultaneously instrumental and spiritual process. And that's what's so intriguing about this new mode of manufacturing that I'm arguing has descended to us from the counterculture and from the world that's surround before that. This is a space where to be a whole person is to be productive in the new economy, to be a member of a team. To be an effective member of a team requires that you be and present yourself as an expressive and whole person. It's not just, um, it's not just like going drinking with the boys used to be, where you all do something embarrassing together and then because you can't confess it, you work better together. Right? I mean, there's, there, there's an element of that here. I mean, the, the, there's definitely an element of that here. I mean, there's a lot of kind of, you know, taking off your clothes, wearing funny things, doing things in public that you might not otherwise do. But there's something quite a bit deeper. Um, I interviewed a number of folks, a lot of folks actually, who build different, who have built different tech projects in the desert. And what they describe is a feeling of what I've called in other contexts vocational ecstasy. They can do in the playa what they can't quite do at the company. The company, they can work smart, they can work hard, they can build the new iPhone. But in the desert, they can work with total commitment as their whole selves for a project that they shape and create. They can experience a kind of flow in the team that's very hard to generate in Apple. At least this is what they tell me. I'm thinking actually one of, one of the Siri developers who I interviewed. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Now, has it become something different than it was before? Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, I guess I kind of think that what we're seeing in the Burning Man of today is what we're also seeing in the Google of today, in the Facebook of today. We're seeing worlds that, have a, that are transforming the legacy, the individualist, expressivist legacy of the counterculture and of the 40s before that into new modes of manufacturing through surveillance. We watch one another, we see what we do, we remarket what we do, we monetize what we do. Um, yeah. But within, within the Facebook and Google universe, at least among engineers, not among all workers, there is still a robustly countercultural aesthetic. If you work in these firms, at least in the California offices, you'll see lots of bright colors, you'll see things that are de devoted to making you creative, to making you expressive, in terms that echo, without precisely repeating, the counterculture. Um, I always love the, the little models that are sort of, you know, hexagonal, Buckminster Fullery. Um, I like murals, bright colored paintings. Um, Facebook actually has the Analog Research Lab, which is something I'm writing about now, which is a, um, a kind of almost 60s style print shop designed to produce um, countercultural prints that are propaganda to be distributed throughout the, the corporation. They say things like, be open. I mean, it's really complicated, right? Be open. <laughs> I, I, I want to be open. I want to be open. I want to be fully myself. I want to be open with you and open with me. But of course, if I'm open on Facebook, that generates a new advertising opportunity. <laughs> yes? Can you get a little louder, please? Oh, my, my question is, do you feel like 
Yep. Right. Right. Yep. 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 I love the way that you're expressing that because you're saying you're kind of not seen in the same light. What's intriguing to me about the legacy of the counterculture in tech worlds is a management style that manages a little bit by, by cool. Um, you know. You know. There's, there's smart folks and there's regular folks, right? The smart folks are engineers, right? The regular folks are in marketing, or worse, at the call center. Okay? But all of, none of that's codified, per se. I mean, it might, there might be salary differences. All the rhetoric is one of leveled hierarchies. Um, and, but, but it's our Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And what I'm trying to get at is that there's, it's, 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 it's the, the, the prejudice that you're experiencing isn't a prejudice against a function. It's a prejudice against a function expressed as a function of your character. You're not smart. The smart people are engineers. But that idea that the character could be the center of the project, that idea is an idea that emerges in the counterculture, not necessarily in the workplace. Yeah, go for it. I'm animal. very nearly done with my slides, so yes. An animal farm? Uh, All <laughs> animals are equal, just some are more equal than others. Right on. Yep, thank you. That's great. That's great. I'm having this kind of wonderful experience where you guys are actually speaking things that are in the back of my mind that I haven't said it anywhere. So thank you. That's, that's great. All right, I'm going to wrap here fairly quickly. So I want to go back to where we started. We started with a vision of the counterculture as um, a kind of colossal technicolor rebellion against the industrial world emerging in the 1940s and 50s during and after World War II. And I argued then that there was far more continuity than change, and I would argue that even more so now. I think that the 60s brought us a kind of deeply personalist, flexible, um, playful, expressive new society. And it's been enormously powerful in the generation of new identities that can be expressed politically. Women's rights, queer rights, racial civil rights, really more of a 50s thing. But it's also brought us some real problems. Um, this is, in many ways, what the upper class looks like today. It looks like us. It's mostly white, it's mostly playful, it's mostly flexible, it's mostly individuated. It's the kind of people that Margaret Mead and the Committee for National Morale hope to produce through multimedia. But it's also the kind of people who form the communes. And when they turned inward, when they turned away from politics and toward self-cultivation as a mode of politics, I would argue that that generation left the other kinds of people who were in the country with them. Communes dropped down right in the middle of Hispanic towns. Oops, our bad. And we're reaping some of the consequences of that choice today. We see it in the personalism, the commercialized personalism of Facebook. We also see it in the deep alienation of the kinds of folks who were never invited to communes. So lest we end on a bad note, I just want to return to, to this person who's a member of the Coquettes. The Coquettes were, a, uh, were uh, uh, still are, thank you, um, yeah, um, were a wild 60s performance troupe. The same turns that I would argue brought us the new economy and the Facebook that we see today also brought us um, a world of radical openness, a world in which it's possible to be a coquette and an anti-war protester. And maybe these are the kinds of people we need now more than ever. 
Um, thank you. Thank you, Fred. We're going to have time for just a couple quick questions. So let's uh, let me uh, actually start things off. So, so you and I, um, we chatted a little bit before this, and I don't know if you thought about this question more. The the my question to you in the context of long now is what is you're doing relatively near term history yeah. for yeah. Uh, compared to a lot of what we think of historians. What do you think the value of that is? in the longer frame for, for our farther future and along now? Well, I guess I, th I, guess I think two things. Um, one, the kinds of things that I'm studying are, are techno-cultural transformations, transformations in how we work and how we think that are happening very rapidly and that many way, in many ways are accelerating processes that if you look at them over the very long haul, it gets harder to see those kind of rapid iterative accelerations that are occurring in very recent time. And I'm hoping that I'm studying some of those things. Um, one way of thinking about this, for example, is I'm talking a lot about the 60s and the counterculture, but if you gave me a 200-year window, what I would talk about are the rise of romantic movements of protest and their decline, their integration back into capitalism, their rise again, their fall and decline. You know, if you start in the sort of 18th century, you can trace this kind of rhythmic motion. And I, my guess is that this rhythmic motion ends with Facebook. Okay? Begins, begins where it begins and ends with Facebook. Um, I'm hoping that's useful. Second thing that I hope is useful is I hope that historiographically some of the things that I'm doing lead to new tools and new ways of thinking about things. Um, it's, it's an academic thing, but it's worth knowing that in mainstream American history, technology and media are still very much excluded. If you ask a traditional American historian what was exciting about the 20th century, that person will generally get all misty-eyed and say, Roosevelt. <laughs> okay, I think Roosevelt was tremendously important. But was Roosevelt more influential than the rise of cinema, radio, television? I don't know. The internet? I don't know. I'm trying very hard to kind of reintegrate the story of the rise of particular technologies and technology styles into the larger history of American culture and American social life. And I think just doing, bringing those two back together, which is something that's habitual in this room but not in the world at large, is of value. Uh, so if there are questions out there, Rio's going to have the mic for you. Um, the question I'm going to ask, get her attention if you want. The, so you, you talked about it ending at Facebook. Well, it's, mm -hmm. obviously it's not ending, um, in, mm -hmm. in spite of what it sometimes may feel like this week. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts with the variety of social media that happen now? We see what's happening with you know, Snapchat and Instagram and then Snapchat and, and other things. It's changing and morphing from what was Facebook into other yep. more media things. W do you have any thoughts on that? Do you see what a trajectory is where some of that makes sense? Or I wish I did. You know, yeah. um, historians often get asked to predict the future. Right. And I, I want to say that we're just like terrible at that. So I, I, really, I really can't do that. What I, what I can do is I can, I can point to a historical irony that's very deep. And, and if Margaret Mead were alive, would pain her deeply. The multimedia of the 1940s, which were designed very explicitly to confront fascism and to prevent it and to promote a particularly democratic personality, have ironically opened the door to Twitter and to other forms through which authoritarians as well as Democrats can express their personalities in ways that draw followers. And it's not just that they're expressing those personalities in ways that draw followers on Twitter, it's also that Twitter did not replace mass media. Twitter exists in a world, like all technologies do it, layered up on older technologies. So there's Twitter, there's Facebook, and there's still television and cinema and newspapers. 
And the Trump world of expressive personality, authoritarian personality, tweets in a way that gets picked up very rapidly in the still advertising-oriented, still mass media world of television and cinema. So the democratic surround that was born in the 40s neither, did, did not replace the mass media world, of the hierarchical proto-fascist mass media world it tried to. On the contrary, in some ways, I would argue, it has become an adjunct of that world. And, and that's extraordinarily painful, because if you go back to the 40s, they really, really, really thought they could make a new world. All right, a question on the step. Um, there's been a lot of talk in this last week about um, uh, sort of Facebook's uh, filter bubbles role mm -hmm. in this election. Mm -hmm. And um, I was wondering if you could just sort of talk about that uh, in the context of your studies. Like what would sure. you think Margaret Mead would say in sort of looking at the situation that we're in now yeah. of like how to create a democratic society through media given right. our issues? So I think Margaret Mead would be concerned about, about bubbles, um, but, but I, I, I think we have to be careful. I actually think that Facebook um, is, is, is wrongly maligned on this point. Um, you know, the American right has been working very actively for 40 years uh, to transform our mediascape and to put it to work on behalf of stories that it knows full well are false. Um, and, and it's built over, I mean, what Trump is saying now is stuff that the John Birch Society was saying in the mid-50s. And the John Birch Society and the right wing around it, what we now call the alt-right, has been around for a long time. And they've built real media companies, real media institutions, into which Twitter, in, which shape the environment into which Twitter and Facebook play. I'm much more worried about Fox News and its impact on public life than I am about Facebook feeds. Facebook feeds may amplify things that appear on Fox, and they may generate stories that appear on Fox. But Facebook's primary deleterious effect, in my view, are the ways that it helps echo what's on mass media, not in the ways that it seems to constrain opinions to people who's, who already share your own. All right, and uh, we're going to close it there. I want to wow. um, okay. say... <laughs> I I'm available after, afterwards. Please come yeah. drink with me. Um, last advertisement, back of the room. That's right. We've got two Great. books back there by Fred, and you'll be sticking Happy around to, to sign, sign yeah. them Signing and, and talk more. Uh, I want to say a quick uh, thank you again to the folks that are listening on our live stream, and thanks to Edward Bertinsky and his film uh, Anthropocene, which are sponsoring uh, and, and letting our members tune in that way. And Fred, I have uh, a little something for you. Okay. This is a long now challenge oh, coin uh, to Carpe Millennium and uh, always to think of us come back often. Uh, please stick around uh, and, uh, and talk to Fred and uh, thank you and a big round of applause for Fred and for you guys. Fred. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.